Hello and welcome to the Irwin Mitchell podcast. We're here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Zara Kabari and I'm a partner here at Irwin Mitchell. And today we're talking about mediation versus litigation and which should you choose? I'm joined by Claire Wiseman, partner in our family team, specialising in international law. Claire Filer, also partner in our family team and a trained mediator. And our guest today is Laura Heaton, barrister from 29 Bedford Road Chambers, also specialising in family law. Thank you all for joining me today. So let's jump straight in. Laura, now as a barrister, the cut and thrust of what you do is represent people in court. And I think you could almost say barristers were born to litigate. But has that changed now over the years? And do you think that barristers now have to be much more versatile in the way that they approach cases? What do you think? I think that's absolutely right, Zara. I think that we go into this profession with the idea that it's all about exciting cross-examination and taking people apart in court because that's what it looks like on the telly. But it really isn't like that. The longer I have been doing this job for myself, things have changed, but also I think the profession in general, because I don't think it's about that anymore. I think it's actually about people and it's about working out how people tick And that's one of the skills that makes you a good cross-examiner, but it also, as a barrister, makes you good at other areas of dispute resolution, whether that is sitting in the mediation context, trying to support two people through the issues that they've got and trying to help them to reach a resolution or other forms of dispute resolution, or even in some cases, doing what is best for that client and going into the court arena. So I think things have definitely changed and developed for those of us at the bar we can't any longer be one-trick ponies no absolutely and I think it's interesting what you say you know when people haven't been in a court environment before at all and then they're faced with this family scenario they often say what's it actually going to be physically like and we always do say don't we it's not the same as being on tv because even the setting isn't like that so I think it's, it's a valid point you make and I think we all need to flex our style particularly when it comes to family law to make sure people we're here to make those people feel comfortable and to make them feel more reassured in that setting. Thank you for that. So, Claire Filer, coming to you, I might have to say your all your first and last name are Claire's today, because I've got two of you. So, Claire Filer, you've been working in family law for 20 years now. Have you noticed a great shift in the way that cases are dealt with? I mean, are we seeing more amicable agreements being made? So I think I would agree very much with what Laura has just said in relation to the change in the way that professionals and clients approach things. I think over the 20 years that I've been doing this, I very much feel that at the beginning of my career, it was almost like court proceedings were just what people expected to see. So if I'm thinking about financial matters, for example, it would often be the case that you'd see a client in a a meeting, you might have a couple of letters in which you suggested some sort of voluntary process, but then you'd get your letter saying, I'm just issuing court proceedings so that we can have a court timetable in the background. And I do feel myself that over the course of the last 20 years, things have changed. You don't see that so often. I think people do look at other methods, whether it's mediation or collaborative law or roundtable meetings. And why do you think that is, Claire? Why do you think it's changed? Um, I think that there are just a lot more options than there used to be. Certainly the options, I think people understand them a lot more. I think the solicitors that are running 
the cases know more about mediation. They know more about collaborative law. It's not just a kind of second thought. Having said that, I think in terms of statistics, there are more cases going to court now in, tw- or in 2021, which is, I think, the m- most recent statistics, than there were 10 years before that. So people are issuing more cases. But finance cases in particular, there are less contested cases than there used to be. So when you count up the number of applications, there are less cases that are going through the whole kind of contested proceeding. So basically, you mean that people are kind of starting in court, but then settling rather than going to that big final hearing, that kind of big day in court where they get to speak. Would you agree with that, Laura? I think that's right. I think there are some positive moves. So people are actively saying, I want to do this in a different way. And that's a lot to do. I think society in general has talked about different ways of resolving disputes, whether they are in a corporate setting or in an employment setting, as well as in the family setting. But actually, I think there's also a kind of a push away from court in a kind of negative sense in that people do engage and then realise how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take because the court system is so clogged up, particularly for cases involving children, but also finance cases. So whilst people still think that that's what they want to do, they're actually being forced to move away. So not necessarily taking an immediate positive step towards mediation and alternative dispute resolution, but having to do it for those reasons and then actually finding that maybe it was the right road anyway. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, though, cost. Cost is a big factor and people want different choices and different options because of cost. Claire Wiseman, you want to come in? I was just going to say you're right there about cost, financial cost, but also I think we're much more alive now to the human cost, the fallout of litigation, the destruction and hatred it can cause. And that, and we're much more alive to that. There's much more anecdotal evidence about the impact of family breakdown and particularly on the children. So I think we're more in tune with that both as lawyers um, and as advisors than we ever were before. So it's financial cost and emotional cost. Isn't yeah, it? it's both of those things together that are driving people away from that day in court. So let's let's change tact here and staying with you, Claire Wiseman, looking at the international stage. And we all say, don't we, the world has become such a smaller place and lots of our clients might live abroad part of the year or have properties abroad or, you know, just have kind of a more diverse international lifestyle. So does mediation work in that international stage? And What type of cases, if any, lend themselves to mediation? Tell us about that. Yeah, international family law is obviously growing, as you say, Zara, particularly post-pandemic. We're seeing international elements in our cases on a much more regular basis. And I think, as Claire and Laura have already said, these alternative dispute resolution methods are not always a substitute for litigation, but can run alongside and dip in and out of the litigation process itself. And that's particularly the case with international family matters. The type of cases that I'm seeing increasingly where ADR and mediation is used is is dispute over jurisdiction. So where should a case take place? What's the right forum, as we call it as lawyers, for a case to be litigated in? Second, do you literally mean which country? Do you literally mean which country? Yeah, which country? Yeah, Yeah, which country or which state? Um, Relocation cases. So one parent wants to move a child or family into another country. Where should they live? Issues in relation to recognition and enforcement of 
orders. There's absolutely no point going through a process of litigation to get an order that you then find is unenforceable in another country. So you can bring international lawyers and advisors into the mediation process much to many people's surprise, it's very, very um, common and very, very beneficial in abduction cases. So where a child has been wrongly removed to a different country or wrongly retained there, although people think that's a binary dispute and can only be resolved in court, um, mediation can be very effective. Looking behind the decisions, the fears of the parents, um, and I'm finding that that's a really powerful tool in international cases. It does sound, doesn't it, that communication at all levels is better in the short, medium and long term between the lawyers across the water. It seems like it's better. Claire Farley, do you want to add something there? Yeah, I was just picking up on something that Claire was just saying. I think the reason why uh, mediation can be so effective in those cases which people think might be a binary outcome, like an, an a leave to remove case uh, moving to a different country with a child is because mediation does take place in that without prejudice context. So it does mean that parents that are having a discussion in mediation about something like which country is the most appropriate place for their child to live and have their main home can talk about it in a much more open way because they might be going to court and they might be saying absolutely there is no way that Australia is the right place to move to but in the mediation room they can explore what a move might look like and just be a little bit more open about it. So explain that a bit further you said the word without prejudice lots of our listeners won't understand that so explain that again so that in court you might say one thing but in the mediation setting you can actually say something else but you don't need to be bound by it in court you can try and settle it without the judge ever knowing is that what you're saying? Yeah, so it means that when you're in mediation and you signed up to the terms of that mediation and have said, we are not going to be discussing anything that happens in the mediation in the court proceedings, that you are then bound by that. So you can explore options. You can say, well, if you if if I did say that you could go, what might my contact be like? And that doesn't mean that you can't keep up the argument that you're making in the court proceedings that actually you really don't want the child to go. So it, it again enhances communication and gives options. Laura, what do you think about all of this? Just to give you a, a personal example, I was appointed as a mediator in an international case and I did it with a co-mediator who was somebody from another jurisdiction. And that worked really well. There was a case that was hotly contested in the courts of both of the different jurisdictions. So one was England and Wales and one was somewhere else. And the parties were able to come into the mediation metaphorically because we did it all online via Zoom. They were living in two different jurisdictions and they were able to talk through all of the options both about the forum dispute, so which country the case should be litigated in, and the wider issues as to the outcome for them as a family. And as Claire was talking about without prejudice, it all sat within that bubble. So the proceedings were awaiting a potential outcome of the mediation in both of those countries. And Neither of the parties felt that they had made any concessions or had agreed as to which jurisdiction things should be 
argued in because they had a mediator from this jurisdiction and then there was a mediator from the other jurisdiction that was a potential place for the litigation. And that worked really well because it kept everybody feeling that there was balance in the discussions. Do you only have co-mediators, so two mediators on an international case, or would you see that more often in other cases? So um, it, co-mediation can be something that works well in, for example, a high conflict case. So where just having that um, different perspective from people might change the tone of a room, for example. So, so you can also co-mediate with people with different skill sets. So you can have a lawyer mediator and then you could have somebody from a more therapeutic background as a co-mediator. So, uh, again, you're getting the different perspectives from different training skill set backgrounds. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, Laura, that you're absolutely right about the different skill set of of mediators, because when I'm advising a client or helping a client make a decision about which mediator to use, you often look at their professional skill set, but you also look at their personal background. You know, mediators like lawyers come in all shapes and sizes, and sometimes um, the, the personal life experiences of a particular mediator as well as their professional experience can help. And I think that one of the benefits that that both Clara and Laura have highlighted of mediation is the emotional issues. Once you unlock those, they often unlock and resolve the entirety of the case. So going back to the international relocation cases, it's often one parent's utmost fear that they will be loved less by the children or they will be valued less by the children and once you unlock that issue perhaps with with a mediator with a therapeutic background um, it can unlock the whole case which can be incredibly powerful and save save the couple a lot of time and and hurt and upset. There's a couple of points I want to pick up on there really is firstly you know, you talked about when you're helping a client choose a mediator, but some clients don't want to go through a lawyer. They're thinking mediation is accessible to clients direct. So when they haven't got the benefit of your experience and the fact that you know all these mediators, whether they're lawyer, trade, solicitor mediators, barrister mediators or qualified mediators in their own right. How does one choose? How do you how does somebody off the street just choose? I think it's really difficult and and I'm sure Claire and and Laura will know more being mediators themselves, but I don't know if we're not involved in that process, I suppose it's difficult to to navigate uh, that thought process. But often we see the fallout of a client feeling that they have gone to the wrong mediator. And that can sometimes be where they simply haven't built up trust and confidence in the mediator, or they have rightly or wrongly a perception of bias. Um, And then we might might be rerouting them saying don't give up with the process you just haven't gelled for whatever reason yeah um, and and maybe give it another go I mean I have to say something that I always say to people is whether you're choosing a lawyer or a mediator or anybody an electrician for that matter get somebody recommended I don't think ever going blind is necessarily a good thing if you can get a recommendation or look at you know there are some websites aren't there like resolution first for family law the law society website I think those things can help but going blind I would say is never a good thing Claire Filer did you want to jump in there Yeah, just picking up on that, um, there are a a lot of online resources. So if someone really doesn't know where to go, I would always suggest as a first port of call, go on the Family Mediation Council website. You can get names of mediators that are in your area. Once you've got those names, go on their websites. 
look them up, see what kind of information and have they they've been got vetted? on there. Have they been vetted? Do the public know have they been vetted? So the Family Mediation Council does have a kind of overarching um, uh, sort of process whereby if you're going going to be a named person on their website you either are an accredited mediator which means that you've put together uh, quite a lot of um, information about the cases that you've worked on it's quite a long process to go through or you are working towards accreditation so you've done your training as a mediator which is quite intensive and then you're working towards that process so whilst they're not um, vetted as such um, you can be comfortable that the people that are on there have had the sufficient training to do it. One of the things that I do, and I think a lot of mediators uh, do it for lots of reasons, is to have preliminary telephone calls before you start. Um, you know, people talk about choosing a therapist, making sure that you gel. It, it's very similar because it is an emotional room to sit in. And I always say to the people I'm mediating with that it's got to work always. It's a kind of triangle. If it's myself mediating and a couple, it's got to work for everybody. And those preliminary telephone calls and probably the first session are a little bit of an exploration of whether we can work together. And I don't think there's any shame in saying, you know what, this isn't quite working for me. I'm not sure that we have got the right match go and find somebody else or or the 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 um, one of the couple saying that that's absolutely what they feel more and I've heard those referred to particularly with coaches and counsellors and now I think it's the right thing to do with mediators from what you're saying is a chemistry meeting you've got to have the right as with a lawyer if you're going to have your if you're going to litigate a case and it's a big conflict case and you feel really strongly that it needs to be litigated or legally it needs to be litigated you've got to have the chemistry and rapport with that person because you're going to live and breathe everything with that person aren't you the most important you're going to bear your soul almost yeah it um, comes back to what i was saying at the beginning that this is about working out how people work yes um, and, how they tick. Um, yeah saying. and it's also what claire wiseman was talking about about the emotional cost because the things that we are dealing with in that room are very, very highly emotionally charged, whether it's about your children, whether it's about your money um, and different people have different triggers. Um, so the emotional charge is high. And again, like Claire Wiseman was saying about trying to find the thing that unlocks the issue in, for example, a, um, a case about children moving to a different jurisdiction but it's the same in any kind of case you need to find what it is that that can unlock things for people and those are things that you're not going to work with in court that's no, not what litigation is about so sometimes people find that you know they don't get what they think is their big day in court because yeah. they've gone through the process they've even had a final hearing and a judge has made a decision fantastic but actually the thing that's really got to them hasn't been ventilated no they um, haven't had their chance to say they, how they feel yeah. more than law and more than facts and evidence this is how yeah. i feel um Claire Fyler, just coming to you for a moment on something else is that um isn't it doesn't it make sense that when you've got children shouldn't you just mediate from everything all three of you are saying because doesn't that end we've got to co-parent these kids for life i mean children don't just leave home they bounce back until as far as i can see 30 40 so you know we're going to co-parent forever and a day doesn't that mean try mediation and doesn't that and doesn't mediation always or usually end in more a positive relationship between the parents long term or have i got that wrong 
So I, I agree with you uh, to some extent, and but not in every uh, situation. So um, I think for mediation, when it when you go through the process of mediation, so when you've had your first meetings, you've had a number of joint meetings, you've talked about your children, um, you've listened to what the other parent has to say, you've gone through that conversation of hope, hopefully getting towards perhaps a parenting plan where you've thought in a bit more detail about things like, um, you know, how discipline might work, not just the sorts of things that you might get in a court order. Um, and I was interested to hear what Laura was saying about that, because I often say to people, you know, a court order is a pretty blunt instrument. It will deal with the nuts and bolts of where children are spending their time, but it might not deal with the things that actually really matter to you as parents. So, yes, when you're going through that mediation process, inevitably, when it works well, you will come out at the end of it understanding a bit more about how the other parent thinks. Um, and also the mediators train to bring your children into the room, not literally, um, but to um, get you to think about what they might think as part of that process. Um, having said that, yes, there are always cases which might not be suitable for mediation. Um, and in those cases, I'll give an example, serious domestic abuse. The mediator might decide at the very beginning of the process that it's not it's just not going to be suitable. And in those cases, of course, you don't come out of it with a better relationship with the other parent. No, and safety is obviously an important issue. You know, people, you know, people's safety and how they feel about their own personal safety is obviously something key that we always want to protect. Claire Wiseman, I'm sure you want to comment, but I want you to steer the conversation in a slightly different direction as well, in that we're talking about choices for clients. This, they've got to have a choice. This is their life, their choice. And it's not just mediation, is there? There's this thing called collaborative law, which I know you've been heavily involved in. But have we seen the death of that now? Is it mediation, mediation all the way? Well, I'm, I, I know I am and a number of other people are still trying to sort of drum the collaborative um, drum, if you like. It's definitely fallen by the wayside. Concern. What is it? First? What is it? OK, sorry. Yeah, let me rewind. So it's been around a long time. I trained 10, 15 years ago. I know Laura is also collaboratively trained and um, you can get lots of good material about it on the web. But it's not often discussed. It's not often talked about in the same way as mediation. So it's simply another mechanism of, of alternative dispute resolution to avoid court. And what is notable about it is you actually sign what is called a participation agreement, which means it's it's an open commitment not to go to court. So if it fails, you have to change the entire team. You have to change your lawyer and, and the other advisors wow, involved that's in the case. It is an impact. And on the one hand, that can put people off. But on the other hand, in my experience, it has made people lazy are focused to reach a resolution. The, the difference, the, the substantial difference from mediation is that you have your lawyers in the room. So you have what we call four-way meetings. So you would have one party with their lawyer, the other party typically with, with their lawyer. So to some extent, clients take some comfort from that. They don't feel as alone as they may feel in mediation. But similarly to mediation, you can bring in other experts. You can bring in financial advisors, family therapists, as Laura was discussing. Discussing. So you've got those additional tools and expertise available to you. What, what I find really um, powerful in collaborative law is the couple sign an, an anchor statement, which is a document that 
sort of underpins and pegs the process to the ground. So where you start to feel the parties are becoming a little unstable or emotionally unsure about the process, you bring them back to the anchor statement and that contains their wish list. What do we want out of this? We want to be able to go to the children's wedding together in the future. We want to be both in the hospital at the same time when when we welcome our first grandchild into the room. And I can find that really emotional sometimes I've, I've been quite emotional when I've read and listened to those statements um, so it's a fabulous alternative I just wish it had a little bit more profile a bit more like oh. mediation has I don't know Laura if you feel the same but it, I do feel it's become a, a little bit um, lost alongside I think it has become a bit lost and I think part of that is the cost issue because it's very much easier to say that mediation is cheaper and now mediation probably is if it works but it's not going to work for everybody. And it's, uh, I think it's about these options that you give to clients right from the beginning, which is very often the role of the solicitor to lay out options. Or um, so when they come to me as a barrister, quite often that work has already been done. But that doesn't mean you can't keep discussing it because you've got to be flexible. We've got to kind of move um, with our focus being on resolution for people Um, and so that can mean a change in process or a development in process is something that I've done for example is come in to somebody else's mediation another professional was mediating I they got stuck on an issue rather than walk away from the mediation I came in and said well in my experience this issue would be dealt with sorry Laura did you did you come in did you come in as a barrister then so you came in with your barrister head on you weren't a co-mediator in that scenario I wasn't co-mediating I wasn't co-mediating I was a sort of barrister quasi judge one of the jobs I do as a barrister is to uh, listen to cases. Um, We call it a private FDR. It's the point in financial proceedings where parties have made their disclosure, have put their offers on the table, and they want to hear from somebody with experience in the field saying, I think this might be the way that this case could be resolved. So I did that kind of exercise. And I said, look, on this particular issue, I think if you were to go ahead and go into court, this is the kind of decision that I think a judge would make. And they then took that away back into their mediation to keep working together on it. So the people listening will find this all overwhelming. There are so many different options here. Um, But also what I want to pick up on is Claire Wiseman talked about mediation potentially being a lonely place and collaborative law allowing your lawyers in the room. But Claire Filer, talk to us about hybrid mediation, because obviously you do have lawyers in the room or can. Yeah, so that was one of the things that I was thinking when Claire was talking. Um, Hybrid mediation is a a model, a type of mediation where um, often it takes place over the course of half a day or a day. um, And it's more like what um, people might perceive civil mediation to be like. So you might have three rooms, for example, you might have the mediator in the middle room, having a meeting with everyone to start with, and then you go into your separate rooms. And when you're in your separate rooms, you have your lawyer there with you. So your lawyer will be able to give you legal advice, should it be required. And then the mediator will often move between the two rooms, trying to help uh, an agreement be reached. So it's just a a different sort of way of resolving things. It's another option. 
And as Laura said earlier, it's great that there are now this huge range of options um, and it's all about identifying what the best way is of helping this particular family sort things out. And it might be that they start with one thing. For example, they might start with legal advice um, and perhaps having some correspondence between solicitors and then they might move on to um, hybrid mediation. So a lot, a lot to take on there. Thank you for that. Laura, do you see mediation gaining popularity? Is it going to get, is it going to overtake everything? I don't think it's ever going to overtake uh, everything because I think there will be cases that will still need to litigate. Just something I wanted to very briefly dial back to was the point about domestic abuse and safeguarding, because those preliminary telephone calls that we um, and first meetings that we have are not just about chemistry. They are also a kind of safeguarding exercise because as mediators, we have that responsibility, particularly where people are coming without legal advice advice where no one has necessarily had that. Our, our antenna are tuned to those issues because it is very difficult to mediate where there is that as an issue or whether there is where there is a very significant power imbalance. And those are the cases that it is hard to mediate. It's not impossible for sure. And maybe something like hybrid mediation or collaborative works in that kind of context. Yeah. So I think that you know the, the government have made a big push towards mediation. They've recently backed off from the idea of, um, in, uh, of uh, requiring everybody to undergo uh, a mediation um, for exactly the concerns raised about domestic abuse. But it is something uh, that I think will continue gaining in use and importance. And it's a really uh, important part of the options for people. Thank you. Claire Wiseman, are there, looking to the future, are there any changes that you'd like to see that could be made that could make it easier for couples separating? Because it's got to be about that. We want to make life easier for our clients. I, I think we're heading in the right direction. I certainly feel that the, the range of options that's now available to clients is incredibly beneficial and the way in which lawyers and, and everybody involved in the process is more educated about the options and the pros and cons, but it's ultimately the client's choice. I think so often we see um, clients being led down a particular route and litigation conducted in a particular way. It, it's about remembering that it's it's the clients at the end of the day. We walk away from a case sometimes years after it started, admittedly, um, and you build up a very strong relationship with those clients, but you then have to leave them to navigate the rest of their lives on their own. So I, I think I think the changes that are underway, educating our junior colleagues as they come into the profession about how, how to do things and not to do things, um, and just to bear in mind all the options that are available. What, one of the other things that we haven't touched on just just in relation to the the pros and cons is the um, the fact that most of these if not all of these alternative dispute resolution methods are confidential so now there is um, a, an increasing pressure for publicity in family law cases what we call transparency um, so high profile clients in particular or very vulnerable clients might choose some of these options to keep their case and and the facts of their case out of the public domain very, very good point there. And that's what these options can do for them. Laura? I think education is a really good point from Claire Wiseman there. I think it's education of junior colleagues and that's part of their training, but it's also education more widely. It's one of my kind of bugbears that uh, 
schools are teaching all sorts of things they're not teaching really important things people still come out of school thinking that there's a concept of a common law wife which we all know is um, not uh, a legal concept that in, um, infers any rights on anybody so it's about uh, I think education from the earliest stages about what all of these kind of options for dealing with difficult issues within families um, are and um, there's also a need for some funding for legal advice at the very beginning. Uh, that's one of the big problems why we have so many litigants in person, why we have people who don't know, who are confused about what the options are because of that stripping back of legal aid meant that people did not get the opportunity to sit down with somebody. Hopefully that's, uh, that is going to improve, but obviously we'll wait and see, but it's important to get that education message out to everybody. Very valid points made. Claire Fowler, as somebody who within Erwin Mitchell in particular uh, is driving mediation because you really want people to have that choice and a different way of doing things, I'm going to give you the last word. So what are you thinking? What are you feeling about the future and the way forward? Um, so I think what's quite interesting um, is that mediation is being talked about a lot, uh, particularly in the last week or so, because last week was Family Mediation Week. At the end of the week, we finally got the government response to the consultation process that had been happening. Um, and what was clear was that mediation, which we thought the government were going to push to be compulsory, is not, in fact, going to be compulsory in family uh, work. So what did come out of that, and we'll have to see what actually happens and what the government actually do, is that there is going to be some kind of push towards more education. Um, so it's, it, I entirely agree with what Laura said about that. Um, so that hopefully there will be some funding, we hope, towards education. There is apparently going to be a lot more information out there that the public can access. Um, and also anyone that's going through court proceedings is going to have to show that they are doing more, whether it's mediation or other non-court dispute resolution methods. So um, what I'm hoping for is that as we look towards the next 20 years, that these sorts of methods of resolving things are going to become more and more popular, which will hopefully lead to more people resolving things out of court. And it will mean that the courts can spend their time on the cases that really matter. Um, whether that will happen or not, I don't know. But I think all of us that operate in, in this sort of area um, are hoping that it will and that things will change in the way that they have done over the last 20 years. But looking forwards that they'll become um, more and more common. Thank you for that. And thank you to all three of you for all your insight uh, today. It seems to me that it's about education communication and choice and I think some people may be overwhelmed by how much they've heard today but there are many organisations out there Erwin Mitchell being one of them Bedford Row being one of them and other uh, lawyers in our community that will help and support and talk you through these options so you find what fits for you and your family so in the contest between mediation versus litigation I think mediation may be a little bit ahead, but perhaps it's a score draw because some people will want and need their day in court. And we understand that, too. And that's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening to this Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then join us for, for our next episode. Goodbye for now. <laughs>